everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don as usual. Today is the long-awaited Subliminal Jihad You Can't Win crossover episode. We have both co-hosts from that excellent podcast on to talk about a very interesting book called The Yankee and Cowboy War by Carl Oglesby. Uh, this is a book that was written in like the 60s, came out in the late 60s or early 70s, something like that. And uh, the basic premise is that the American ruling class or the ruling elites are divided into two camps, the Yankees and the Cowboys. So we're going to talk about that idea and maybe um, try to critique it a little bit. We've kind of looked around and found some uh, interesting critiques of the idea as well. So it should be an interesting one. This is a book that I have been wanting to read for a very long time. Uh, It kind of came on my radar uh, years ago, and I've just never been able to get a chance to read it. Um, but these guys have, so they're going to talk us through it. So, uh, yeah, welcome to the podcast, Dimitri, and uh, welcome back, Khalid. Yeah, happy to be yeah, back. Welcome, guys. Hey. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, so why don't you tell us about this book, uh, The Yankee and Cowboy War? Okay. Um, so, The Yankee and Cowboy War, it's something I stumbled upon a few years ago. It was written, I think, in 1976 by a former SDS activist and journalist named Carl Oglesby. It was after he had left the SDS. And he kind of posited a kind of a... It's it's one of the first attempts to kind of integrate a kind of class analysis and a conspiracy analysis into a lot of the political events and upheavals of the 60s and 70s. And his basic thesis is that both the assassination of JFK and the Watergate scandal that took down Nixon were part of a kind of intra-class feud between the two dominant kind of class, economic, uh, social, political class formations, which he terms the Yankees, which are basically the Northeastern industrial banking establishment, and the Cowboys, who are kind of the Texas oil billionaires, Southwestern defense contractors, uh, things of that nature, uh, who kind of can trace their lineage to some extent back to the vanquished Southern aristocracy and also like the Western robber baron pioneers. And so, yeah, that's his basic thesis is that the cowboy faction of the American ruling class was the driving force behind assassinating Kennedy. And then the Yankee class sort of got their revenge in the early 70s by concocting the Watergate scandal to basically uh, take down Nixon. And yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the long and short. I mean, he goes into a lot of evidence about the JFK assassination. That's pretty good stuff. And about Watergate connections like Howard Hughes and E. Howard yeah. Hunt and his wife and just all kinds of shenanigans. I think it does a great job of, of saying that these things were conspiracies. And then he offers this kind of meta class analysis of these are the real fault lines and friction points of you know how power is kind of distributed and kind of pushes against it's it's kind of a pluralist theory but it's more of an elite pluralist like conspiratorial kind of theory um i think he said that at one point that conspiracy is like the continuation of policy by like normal means um or clandestinism (laughs) is something like that like it's basically standard operating procedure um even if these people sometimes aren't fully self-aware to, to the extent uh, at, at which that they are conspiring with one another. But 
Yeah, right. I don't know. If, yeah, uh, yeah. One call of the most. Yeah, it. one of the parts of this book that really sticks with me is you know trying to defend the concept because even at the time you know the idea of conspiracy uh, was controversial and it had this negative connotation that it has now when people think uh, su- suggest that there's a conspiracy then that is seen as being uh, you know paranoid or irrational or crazy, yeah you know. Yeah. I mean, that term, conspiracy theory, I believe, was essentially popularized after the JFK assassination as a means of anything that went against the official government story was, to, oh, that's just a conspiracy theory. You know, that's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah li- that's literally It was true. a deliberate, yeah. like, intel strategy, uh, more not just, like, even at a media level, but, you know, within the intel agencies themselves, they popularized that term. But something, a uh, story that he tells is when he's talking about uh, this idea of a conspiracy um, among these, or the, the phenomenon of conspiracy and conspiring among these groups. Uh, he's talking to a group of sort of high-end business people, and they're all very incredulous, and they're like, are you suggesting there's a conspiracy at the highest levels? And he sort of asks, well, uh, what about like at your jobs? Like, don't you feel that there is all this sort of dealing? And they're like, yeah, of course. And they start like, talking and going on about like, you know, plotting against their coworkers and all those schemes <laughs> that go on yeah. and things like that. But like, mm-hmm. at a, like for some reason, like at a certain point, there's like this horizon of uh, disbelief where like once it gets to a, a certain level or a certain level of uh, political uh, advancement or power, then it's not conceivable anymore. Right. Yeah, that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense, right? Once the stakes get higher, then people are less likely to conspire and plot, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, totally, totally, <laughs> yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, is our, our favorite sense. um our favorite quote about conspiracy, I think it was by C. Derek Varn on the Zero Books podcast. We've kind of uh we've kind of ragged on it a couple of times, but he, he advanced this very confident theory that conspiracies of groups greater than fifty people are kind of categorically impossible because more than fifty people can't keep a secret. So you can just yes. write it off. Like, no, yeah. nothing over 50. Nobody- Once you hit 51, that's when it all falls apart. Like, if, yeah, literally yeah. the 51st person, that's where you introduce. He walks yeah. in like, hey, what's going on? Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking about something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, we just oh, got to find those yeah. 49 guys who did 9-11. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Yes. Uh, I re- Yeah. That reminds me of uh, a quote from Michael Parenti when he was talking about something similar about like conspiracy theories and stuff and he said he said that whenever people come approach him about this kind of stuff uh they always say do you think these guys get together in rooms and talk about this kind of stuff like like do they really have these rooms where they are getting in like to conspiracy and uh, he would always go and tell them of course they meet in rooms where else would they meet yeah <laughs> like he's like no really even that even the if you say smoke-filled room that sets something off in people that like that's not true that's not true but it's like well i don't know people smoked back then and they were in rooms like yeah Yeah, exactly yeah Yeah. there's so many stories of that literally happening you know yeah going back to like the boss tweed machine and you know everything you know this is this is a i mean that that, that's the thing that i think is interesting about yankee and cowboy war is it it shines a spotlight on these older kind of economic networks of power that have been around for such a long time. And I think just by by extrapolating it back to the Civil War, that's a very intellectually stimulating uh, move to make that I think mm-hmm. can kind of bear some fruit. Even if I don't fully, I don't know, I have my kind of picadillos with maybe the finer points of his theory, especially when we've tried to apply the rubric to things that are going on maybe from the 80s to today. 
It's sure. always like there's some so there's some aspect of the Yankee cowboy dialectic that does map onto it, but then there's like these contradictions that don't quite fit. And so mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I think yeah. Yes, I mean, I think there's lots of, like, granular distinctions in it. I think that, you know, he does clarify that even though uh, he uses the Southern aristocracy as an example and there are elements of it that are incorporated into the sort of cowboy formation or the cowboy block, there is a a difference where this develops more recently as it exists today. Uh, So there's a little bit of granularity, and I do appreciate that aspect of it. Like, again, yeah, there's definitely flaws, and especially as, like, something that is just broadly applied. There's lots of, you know, situations where this doesn't quite hold up as the ultimate, like, total explanation for everything or uh, the, like, master hermeneutic for, like, all American politics. Like, definitely, I would say no. But it is, uh, you know, valuable in the respect that it pushes back, as we just said, against the idea that, you know, there's no such thing as people making a plan in a room or a conspiracy with more than... 50 people, and also against the idea on the other side of uh, the ruling elite as being a homogenous group. Because I think that that fundamental idea, I think that it would even take it to a higher level than just the Yankee cowboy split. There are splits like within those factions. It's like actually like a hyper fractalization of factions. Like that's really how I, I feel that it works. But the idea of this, you know, all the elites as being homogenous or like having class solidarity, like they do to a point, but. It's much more complex than that. And a lot of the time, they even when they do seem to converge, they believe that they're working against each other. And through their competition, uh, they arrive at some kind of convergence. Yeah, that, that last point, that has always bugged me about the way people talk about certain things. Uh, like the, the U.S. is doing this, they want to do this, or the CIA did this, and they have these interests. Like, there's factions within all these groups you can't really talk i mean you can say the cia did something if you understand also that there are like you know what are you specifically referring to like there are certain factions in it like there are you know to use this vocabulary there are cowboy factions and there are yankee factions right yeah yeah that's even a common term i think that i've heard you know ex-cia people use about the operations division versus the analyst division the nickname of the operations people are cowboys basically mm. yeah so interesting yeah yeah so the, and, and they and, and it was kind of a lot of these people that i think are even mentioned in Oglesby's book uh even though you get into kind of a strange mix where you got these kind of cia cowboys in one sense going around kind of doing the bay of pigs and training these anti-caster cubans but a lot of them you know people like for example richard bissell Uh, ended up being like the chairman of the Ford Foundation, you know, which was a pretty Mm. liberal, soft empire, very kind of Rockefeller Council on Foreign Relations kind of organization and doing a lot of stuff on the more... Classic Yankee stuff. Yeah, classic Yankee. And he was a skull and bonesman from Yale who I believe I found that his, I believe Richard Bissell's grandfather was in the Yale graduating class of 1844 with George H.W. Bush's grandfather and Alan Dulles's grandfather. All of their grandfathers mm-hmm. were in were in the same class at Yale in 1844. So, you know, it's like even if he was running around Bissell, maybe doing some cowboy stuff with these, you know, anti-Castro Cubans and stuff, it, it, do, it doesn't get more Yankee than that, right? Sure. So, yeah. you know, but that, that yeah, that's something we could circle back to later in terms of my kind of, um, I don't know, slight critiques. But I still think, yeah, I don't know. It's, it, it's a whole interesting framework. Yeah, it is. I mean, because you can look at that like an individual. It's not like they are going to 
self-identify with one or the other team you know they don't have uniforms and they don't keep score you know what i mean like (laughs) they're just kind of looking out for whatever seems appealing to them for whatever reason and that may kind of switch sides you know they may kind of uh play for the yankees a little bit then play for the cowboys or whatever you know like it's uh and and even those factions it's probably not a hard distinction all the time you know they may even come together on things at times you know it's it's Mm -hmm. more just like a the way I see it, and again, I haven't read the book, but just like this, this idea has always been very interesting to me since I heard of the book. Uh, that um, you know, like like you were talking about the socioeconomic basis for each of the factions, I think that kind of helps to understand like the contradictions within the ruling elite, and then how people are going to play that is is going to differ depending on their particular interests and their position within that game. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Um, yeah, I don't know, very interesting stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, it's very interesting in terms of, like, the identification. I think that there is, like, sort of, I mean, people don't generally use these terms. People don't self-identify as, like, I'm a Yankee or I'm a cowboy because, really, they're almost, I feel like they're almost pejorative in a way where what, someone yeah, in one faction sure. might be able to objectify someone in the opposite faction where I think there is, like, a sense, like, you know, among people who are cowboy aligned, uh, you know, to use like a, a contemporary example of like, you know, owning the base, or, you know, uh, like a based person, like owning the, the PMC Atlanticists or something like that, you know, <laughs> right. like, uh, and, uh, the, you know, of course, the opposite. And I think that in terms of movement across that, there's also a sense of, and you see this a lot whenever there's this kind of like dialectic of, of self and other that is at play at all. Uh, people are always appropriating from, like, whatever is objectified as the other, you know? Like, uh, they're always saying, like, oh, well, you know, they, like, our enemy, they do this, so, like, we have to do that. Like, whether or not it's even a a true thing or, like, just a projection of what they feel that the enemy is doing, then they want to appropriate that idea for themselves. And there's, Mm -hmm. like, many examples of this, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of an anti-anti tendency, like a knee-jerk yeah sort of thing um yeah it kind of reminds me how some of the like some of the people that were yankees that were hovering around say the ford foundation and were also you know wrapped up with like kennedy and everything they kind of looked upon they kind of recoiled against mccarthyism it seems to a point but they, it's mm-hmm. not because as maybe the john birch society would have said that they were pro-communist they were kind of more at, at most or at best you could say maybe like anti-anti-communists to some extent of like hey like my don't like throw all my cool hollywood friends in jail just because they flirted with the communist party in the 30s man what the hell you know and i think right. that uh they saw that that was but that approach was maybe doing more harm than good to their particular interests and i do think that there's something to the idea that there was like there, because I think when you're talking about the overall American ruling class, they had to make some very big decisions during the Cold War era, bigger than they'd ever made before on like a global scale that, you know, could either, I don't know, like make America sink or swim. You know, this is this is a huge uh, global political economic struggle going on. So I could see how the Yankees at a certain point and, and Oglesby makes this point pretty well that they were not anti going to Vietnam in kind of the beginning. They weren't as down with it, but at the same time, like basically they, they were, they were interested in winning the Vietnam war up to a point, 
And uh, Oglesby talks about the fascination with special war that JFK and his people had, which sounds it, it, it that that's one of those things that echoes so well to like Obama and modern Democrats and the yeah. kind of more like Atlantic Council kind of, uh, you know, as a and, and then you can even look at like the Bush era in like the second Iraq war as being this like archetypal cowboy approach of like, we're going to go like blaze trails and shock and on settle the new frontier. And there was a kind of similarity where at a certain point that caused certain negative externalities for America and particularly made us lose uh, a little bit of it, it strained the relations with Europe which I think mm-hmm. Oglesby is correct in pointing out that, that was kind of a primary importance to the Northeastern elites was we have to be mindful of these Europeans. And I think what you see with the more Southwestern people and, you know, maybe Oglesby like overdetermines it a little bit, but that they have kind of a more like, yo, fuck Europe kind of attitude. You even saw it with Trump. Like, why do we need NATO? Fuck NATO. Right. You know, like these little these little freeloaders, I don't care about them. And instead, they were much more... Uh, Oglesby kind of does. He does a little like psychoanalyzing of this class. And I think there is something to it. He talks a lot about the frontier mentality and how the people mm-hmm. in the West and the Southwest and stuff, um, you know, in some cases descended directly from more recent, you know, uh, settlers, basically settler colonialists, and they kind of wanted to keep expanding the frontier out to Vietnam, to Central America, to Cuba, to South America, to Africa, and all these things. Uh, or Yeah, and, and basically it's not that the Yankees were opposed to that. After all, like they had been totally wrapped up in Manifest Destiny and settling the West and all that stuff as well, and financed it a lot. You know, Eastern banks were were instrumental, but it wasn't as existential for them necessarily that we needed to conquer a new frontier to prove that, like, whatever, you know, um, or else, you know, we were going to feel like we were punking out in front of the world and that, you know, we were showing weakness or, or, or whatnot. So I think there's something to that psychological angle and a genuine, uh, like, a dispositional sort of thing where... And, and maybe it comes down to money, too. That's a, the other important thing is that mm-hmm. these defense contractors stood to gain very immediately from the Vietnam War. And then <clears throat> I believe there were issues with, like, <clears throat> you know, basically, the basically I think it was with deficit spending because we hadn't abandoned the gold standard yet. And, like, balance of payments issues uh, regard, you know, connected to Vietnam spending that were kind of messing with the eastern banks, in a way mm-hmm. that they didn't particularly love. Now, of course, I think at the end of the day, these people are probably mostly able to like sit down and settle their differences. But you could kind of see, I mean, these are all a bunch of greedy mega capitalists at the end of the day that are kind of jealously defending their uh, position, you know, in society, in the world, in the economy. So like, yeah, maybe they would get a little bit salty that, oh, okay, so we have to go make ourselves look bad and hurt our economic interests so Bell Helicopter can make a billion dollars and Raytheon and Lockheed can totally clean up and, you know, basically you guys can go have your your frontier fantasy and you, you know, you're, you're not, I think, you know, it probably got a little bit contentious and personal maybe mm-hmm. to some extent cuz the whole the whole liberal ruling class did turn against Vietnam but it seems to have been in a very instrumental kind of okay we finally concluded this isn't worth it so now let's like allow a certain level of anti-war sentiment to like flood sure. into the culture right yeah 
Yeah, you know, uh, Dimitri, that stuff about the frontiersman mentality kind of makes me think of like people like Ted Cruz and how he's always dressing up in like the big hats and the cigars and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff and just like the really goofy aesthetic or whatever that like Republicans kind of have around that kind of thing of being like the big tough cowboys and all that kind of like it is sort of a I can understand like that that cowboy term is like a pejorative thing but they also seem to like want to project it like I think there's something about that yeah, yeah. It, it, um, it reminds me of the one of the songs I used uh, I put in as the interlude for our episode a uh, pretty good country song but I think the refrain you know is uh like uh, you know, he ain't a cowboy. He ain't a real one. He's just a city boy in disguise. It's all about some city <laughs> yeah. guy that dresses up like a cowboy and goes down to the honky tonk bar, but everyone can tell he's full of shit. And it made me think of like the bushes and, you know, right. we're kind of the ultimate example of that. Like the most like blue blood Connecticut Yaley family of like, you know, skull and bones cheerleaders, like going down to Texas and like, you know, clear and brush off the ranch and yeah, stuff. Exactly. And, right. you know. Yeah. I'm thinking of like Ben Shapiro in his hat. Yeah. Like the ten gallon cowboy hat, like yeah. It's also relevant because you know I think uh, one time you know broken clock twice a day, but the time I uh, remember in 2016 when Trump started insinuating that uh, Ted Cruz's dad was involved in the JFK assassination. I think he's right. <laughs> yeah. I think he's yeah. right. There's, there's, a, there's a picture that picture that you know was in the National Enquirer and stuff of like Rafael Cruz handing out hands off Cuba pamphlets with Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans. And then I found a video mm. from a local news station where the Hands Off Cuba committee like went in for a radio interview. And just as Lee Harvey Oswald's leaving, just behind him is this young dude with kind of these big kind of Dumbo ears and kind of pointy nose. And it's like, oh, my God, that's a young Ted Cruz. But, you know, it's obviously his dad. <laughs> but it's like and nobody ever talked about that video, which you can go look on YouTube. And then, you know, he fled the country and like went to Canada right after JFK got assassinated and... Uh, anyways, Interesting. Um, yeah, I think actually like he's a real cowboy, if you know what I mean. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the Bushes and and even Trump, I think like you guys brought this up on your episode, which I thought was really excellent. I really enjoyed the episode you did on this book. Uh, the fact that they are you, you would have to think of them as Yankees, but they've definitely kind of gone cowboy to some extent. Like you mentioned the you know, the Bushes, uh, you know, George Bush going to Texas, uh, Jeb Bush going to Florida. Mm-hmm. And, but coming from, like, as you said, that skull and bones kind of background with uh, with their father, you know. And then Trump obviously being, like, New York real estate mob guy. Th- that's Yankee stuff. But as far as his politics goes, you know, build the wall, you know, mm-hmm. anti-NATO, anti-NAFTA, all this kind of stuff is much more on the cowboy side of things and yeah. yeah, it's just, uh, it's funny. It's interesting. I, that was something that stuck out to me when I was thinking, I think I mentioned this on our episode, that, yeah, you think of the Cowboys and they're characterizing the book as having this frontier mentality and being very focused on maintaining the frontier as central to American identity and being much more, like, actually about having, like, sort of a sovereign American identity than the Yankees who uh think of themselves in terms of europe or as part of sort of like a a transatlantic uh coalition or or civilization um and uh yeah it's uh it's interesting though the way that it's kind of shifted in a way i don't know i think there maybe are ways of thinking that they still have this type of frontier orientation but the broad themes i see like in the rhetoric of people who you think of as being cowboys are, are much more now about closure you know like you mentioned build the wall 
which is, I mean, you know, in some ways, like fr- the frontier uh, and sort of uh, dominating the frontier does involve like the construction of walls and the use of barbed wire and things like that. So maybe they can mm-hmm. go hand in hand. But yeah, it's an interesting uh, transformation, I-, I think, in a way that one that sticks out to me anyway. Yeah. Uh, Don, I'm kind of interested what your thoughts are on all this so far. I don't. I, I think this is all kind of new to you, so I'm just interested what your first impressions are. Yeah, I, I was reading a bit about this uh, today, um, uh, about like the whole uh, breakdown between the two different groups. And I, I guess I always think of it in terms of like maybe from the other side, like how it affected socialist countries and uh, like this this division in terms of the anti-communist like extremism of the the cowboys and then sort of this realist approach uh of the yankees maybe of this idea of you know like that i i sympathize with more like in terms of being more realistic or something like that of being like you know america is on top so therefore you know of this global order so therefore it's more like don't rock the boat kind of thing like Mm -hmm. don't yeah. You know, let it let it kind of play out and we'll win the Cold War just by letting it play out because uh, it, it's not, you know, we don't have to take giant risks or anything like that because we, we, we're on top. And, it, you know, you get this uh, other side of it of just being sort of terrified of communism having a chance, at least, like, you know, to take over. Like, and uh, anyways, that's that's the kind of thing that I was thinking about, like, of this, um, because... I feel like you see uh, how socialists react to things. Um, you know, they have their own, uh, you know, cliques or whatever within their own uh, political systems that uh, depend on whether or not, like, say, uh, you know, how they can approach the United States as, like, a force in the world and stuff, right? Mm. So, you know, like, a lot of uh, socialist leaders would kind of... It, it's like they, because of this dynamic or something at least they had to play into this in different ways like if you read certain things from socialist countries like uh soviet union stuff they would they would act as if they were like terrified of you know like they 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 greatly exaggerated a lot the threat of the united states to them in different ways Um, yeah in terms of like uh military direct threat or something Mm -hmm. because of this kind of uh I don't know. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, then, uh, yeah. And then I try to translate it as well to like nowadays, which is harder, but just like in terms of, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you, you know, people talk more and more about like this multipolar world and things like mm-hmm. that. And there is this, there's this sort of thing that I find frustrating that they try to, they, you know, they're trying to taking one side or the other in this try to fight where I feel like, uh, um, you know, in terms of the, you know, saying about there's like a new Cold War and all this stuff. And again, it's the same kind of thing where it's like you see people who are on the left who I feel like are playing into this, like want almost almost like desire anti-communism or something like that. Like they want they want the contradictions to get really intense because they think that somehow that's how they win. They can they can kind of denounce the more accelerating process of you know, inter-imperialist rivalry or something like that as a strategy for them to, you know, like they, they say that that's their number one fear, but you can kind of tell almost there's like this mm-hmm. desire underneath it yes. of, you know. It would make things like a lot the, simpler. Yeah. 
I sure. find that yeah. I find that so interesting because it really is about I don't know like what at what point I cut out earlier uh, in saying this, but yeah, there is so much desire and like a libidinal drive towards either side. I think that plays a role in this sort of Yankee cowboy thing. And so far as like one side being objectified as like limp wristed, you know, Atlanticist like PMC types versus you know ignorant savages or whatever from from I don't know who are, are racist and everything like that. The uh, mm-hmm. I think that there is, but there is a sort of a sense of, you know, for instance, on the left, one might say like, oh, you know, we need to be like them. We need to not compromise. You know, they never compromise. Like, we can't do that. And, uh, you know, on the right, they're like, oh, you know, they're always canceling us. You know, we need to cancel them. And of course, like both mm-hmm. of these things, like our perennial, uh, you know, attributes of both sides. And you can see that, you know, across the board, you know, with communism and uh, with capitalism or with the United States and the Soviet Union, for instance, like something that comes up a lot. And our show is the topic of, of mind control and MK Ultra and all these things. And there is a huge uh, notion in within those programs and within those circles that were participating in them that the Soviet Union was like leagues and fathoms and fathoms ahead in terms of like, right. you know, mind control. But like, really, they they weren't at all like and eventually they were like, oh, mm-hmm. wait, like we're not. And it's this different pose. And it does it, like so much of this, I think, in terms of, you know, Tom's point about the self-identity, whether people see themselves as being the cowboy, even to the point of like Ted Cruz putting on the hat. It's about like the idea of the self and relationship to like this identified other, which is like, yeah, as you said, I think kind of the same way that there's this dialectic of self and other, there's this uh, revulsion and desire like for for the other uh, and, you know, mm-hmm. against against the other as well, like in these formations of identity uh yeah. you know across and, the board yeah and maybe a lot of projection in the mix we talked about that yeah. in relation mm-hmm. to mk ultra and all kinds of other things of basically like the the sort of internal explanation i think that you know kind of flowed out of alan dulles's office with mk ultra to the people that had to know about it was look we have discovered the most disturbing things about what the chinese and the soviets and the north koreans are capable to do so we need to come up with counter weapons that are better and maybe you know if we're lucky we can get ahead of them but in reality mm-hmm. like that whole story was kind of a bunch of bullshit because what happened was i think they shot down some pilots during the korean war who were dropping germ warfare on north korea and then uh, through what you know through a variety of much more kind of mundane i think persuasive methods the you know the Uh, the communists basically convinced or persuaded these soldiers to go on the radio or go on television, basically confess to dropping germ warfare and, you know, violating like the Nuremberg, you know, convention and blah, blah, blah. And because we couldn't admit that we were in fact dropping germ warfare on the DPRK, they had to come up with some kind of explanation of why these guys would be. And of course it just looked bad that our soldiers were, you know, denouncing the U S imperialists or whatnot. And so we came up with, they must have been mind controlled, you know? Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. then, but then we went and built this vast project and apparatus of social control and mind control and all these things kind of, and I'm sure plenty of people told themselves, well, you know, we got to do this because the communists are doing it. And so mm-hmm. I think sometimes you can see, yeah, like it's it spin back around and like you can use what you think the other person is doing to build your own nefarious project. And I, I feel like even within the American elites, they do this a lot. Like, the, you know, you see the liberal hypocrisy all the time of like, you know, basically Trump, like he's 
oh, he's such a barbaric, evil piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, when Joe Biden did his first airstrike in, like, Syria, someone was like, I just slept so well tonight knowing that, (laughs) you know, our president is just so dignified when he drone strikes like a hospital, (laughs) you know? And so they're kind of absorbing the the, these evil, loathed, barbaric characteristics of the so-called cowboys. It's even almost like a... uh, uh, I'm almost getting like a, a, a alternate personality, like dissociative identity on a class scale kind of vibe. Like, you know, like yeah. you project every part of yourself. Because I think when we get into the financial stuff, these people are so intertwined that it's kind of absurd for a Yankee to look down upon a cowboy and act like they have nothing to do with them. You know, I'm, I, right, you know, sure. somebody on the highest perch, like to say it's like, well, your great, great, great grandfather's insurance company like funded the railroad that, you know, J.P. Morgan was involved in that bought like 78 percent of the land in eight states and now is like connected to a defense contractor that wears a cowboy hat. But you know what I mean? Like, uh, it, yeah. if you want to play that game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another great example of this, it's a little bit far afield from what we're talking about, but it does come irresistibly to mind, is uh, the sort of racialist right wing in Western countries and Muslims. Like, they obviously, like, are at odds, but there's also kind of, like, a love affair between them. You know, like, one mm-hmm. is always trying to, right, like, uh, sure. the, I remember there was the white Sharia thing for a while, where, like, you know, all these people on Stormfront or whatever, like, we need white Sharia or whatever, and all the white nationalist women were getting <laughs> yeah. mad. It's like, wait, no, like, please. And they're like, no, shut up. Like, you had to go in a burqa and stuff like you know like uh yeah yeah and of yeah. course you know we have like muslims who are always like desiring of course you know the to be more like the the right wing you know and same uh, thing so yeah it's the but they hate each other of course but there's also this this huge love affair yeah there's sort of this weird i i see this quite often where people who are kind of aligned that way politically on the right will have this like respect for like social conservative values or whatever <laughs> mm-hmm. that they they see yeah. represented by Muslims like as if like they kind of have the image of the barbarian Muslim who lives in a cave yeah. and has 20 wives and you know barters with goats and stuff and then it, like respects that image like that's yeah you know it's at, at least they're not like these effect <laughs> yeah right they're at least they're not these like effect urbane yes. you know like you know city folk who are like corrupting our country you know you know they're standing up for it's yes yeah i remember know, i always say yeah. politics is for perverts and losers and this is exactly what I yeah mean. no like there, i remember there was a lauren southern tweet like not too long ago that was like oh, i would rather send my kid to like a muslim school than a gender school or something like that you know uh yeah, yeah. And, i've seen a lot know, of that lately like in the uk yeah. and stuff you know like mm-hmm. they were like you know this muslim community like when they came in and tried to like pass you know trans rights they said if you come back here we'll kill you that we need to be more like that or something you <laughs> yeah, know like exactly. really extreme stories yeah, yeah, like yeah. that yeah yeah mm-hmm. right yeah love to be a tool between these two camps it's great yeah right uh yeah between just like the ultimate dialectic of just like flirting people just go back and forth it's like yeah the it's it's beautiful it's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. yeah um, i was also thinking uh you know as an example of something of the like to describe what the yankee mentality was like or something was like uh um, it's like that network speech, right? Like uh, um, where mm. he goes, you know, the whole uh, holistic system of you know, dollars and all that stuff. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, how it, it has that kind of attitude of, you know, what do you think that they do in the Soviet Union? You know, like yeah. they, they're, they're doing, they're trying to make money too, or like they're trying to, 
you know, they, they plan things in this management style way mm-hmm. or something, you know, and, and, uh, I feel like that's kind of, it's like, you know, where, you know, it, it's like, you've got like a racket going and it's, it's not just a racket. It's also like a, it's like an ideology around it that, that justifies the sort of, sort of being in charge. And then, uh, you know, people that are trying to like actually win the game, say, you know, like, like in terms of like, say, uh, totally conquer all of your enemies and all of this kind of stuff. They're the ones that are the dupes in, in a certain way, kind of like they're the dumb ones because it's like, you know, it's like, you know, if you're, if you're a crime Lord or something like that, your, your, your goal shouldn't be to completely dominate every crime racket that you can or anything like that. Yeah. It's basically to just live a good life, you know, within your kind of system or even get out of it if you can kind of thing, you know, somehow, somehow just coast kind of thing instead of, yeah. you know, get away with it. Yeah. Get away with it instead of just try to be, you know, and I think that that's especially true with all the intelligence agency kind mm. of stuff where it's like, or even like crime, you know, like if you're thinking about like with cartels or something, uh, you know, the, the goal of like the FBI or something like that shouldn't be, it's not, or like these other groups and stuff, it's not really get rid of all of drugs in the United States or something like that. Right. It's, it's no. just ma- manage the chaos kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So manage yeah. the chaos, Absolutely. No, I think, yeah, you always need like part of it is like the, the fractionalism. And in fact, it wouldn't function like without it. Like you need the, the tension, like the discord, like the convergence happens through it in a way. Like if you think about it, like if, you know, the Yankees need the Cowboys and the Cowboys need the Yankees, like if either one of these sides mm-hmm. accomplish their goals, like what would they do, you know, or like if, uh, you know, the right wing in America, like, won everything. Like, what would their whole lives revolve around? Like, the same thing with, like, you know, if either of these factions, like, somehow it's were really victorious. Su- you're you right. Know? Like, it, it, I, I hate to do it, but, you know, like, didn't uh, a certain Joker once say, like, you couldn't exist without me, Batman? And uh, <laughs> uh, not to, you know, overturn that, but I think it's, it, it's rooted so deeply in American culture. It's like the fundamental dialectic, like, that you can project onto, like, the baddie or, you know, basically... You see it so. I mean, it's it, it's Coke and Pepsi. It's Republicans and Democrats. It's Batman and Joker. They are just always going to yeah. fight each other. You can't really. The explanation for the existence of one doesn't really work without the existence of the other. And you saw after the Cold War, after you know the communists were basically vanquished, that we had to scramble pretty quickly. I think everybody implicitly kind of understands that now that we it, it you know we we couldn't go much longer than a decade without finding a new Joker to basically rail against eternally. And we did in terms of like Islamic terrorism, which we also, which, you know, the CIA or factions thereof uh, basically created. So, yeah. And I I mean, really, I think that what you're describing is basically like Hegelianism, which is, it's very fundamental to, yeah. Like, you know, even when you talk about dialectics, you know, that's very fundamental to like all frameworks for understanding the world, like both on the left, especially on the left, but also very much on the right. Uh, You know, Hegel's influence is great. Like in terms of, uh, in terms of the the hermeneutics on, on the right, you know, Evola, like you could see Hegel's influence on him. There, you know, the whoever what, Spengler, yeah, exactly. Oh, de- very much, very much Spengler. So the yeah, exactly. And I think that with Batman and Joker, you know, that's what you have. You have a basically, you know, Batman's very grim and he's shadowy, and Joker's like very bright and like. 
but Batman's somehow good and Joker's bad, you know. Batman's uh, also just... literally like an industrial scion who like his dad is like all wrapped up in like the defense industry and he basically lives in Chicago and yeah, and like the Joker's kind of like a mafia boss kind of and it's it's actually I don't know, not to get too deep into like Batman, but uh, but you could almost see like the Operation Underworld stuff that Oglesby talks about in his book, like the deep relationship between the national security state and the FBI and the mafia starting mainly in, in World War II with a, a little bit before. And, you know, Meyer Lansky's like close relationship with uh, Fulgencio Batista, you know, going back to the 1930s and then the immense geopolitical importance of uh, Cuba that to both the mafia and the U.S. national security state that, you know, they, they are kind of, um, you know, Batman and Joker, in a way, it kind of lines up. Um, I mean, in terms of, you like, know. yeah, on one hand, like, it's it's something that we encounter a lot, like, with these th- pheno- cultural phenomena that actually have great importance, such as, like, theatricality, like, art, culture, you know, the other aspects of culture, you know, film itself, you know, uh, there's kind of, like, a pall over them, or even religion, there's a pall over them where it's like, that's not serious, you know, don't want to talk about it, but, you know, if you think about it, there probably is some reason why, like, American culture is so deeply obsessed with Batman and the Joker, like, you know, uh, if you think about it, there's probably something deep going on in terms of like this incredible overriding fixation with this these two characters you know? and it may you know what it also oh, yeah. it, it makes batman it it, it really <laughs> dodges a lot of suspicion away from who batman really is and what the hell he's up to because he's actually if you just look at him objectively like if you look at batman on the level of going around beating up muggers and stuff like that he's an absolute psychotic fascist you know he's, like this he's guy. a zimmerman he's jordan zimmerman. yeah yeah, yeah he's he a vigilante yes he's a vigilante <laughs> george zimmerman yeah and mm-hmm. yeah so it's like he almost is like you know maybe he's a fifth generation son of one of these industrial the, the wayne dynasty well where is gotham city gotham city's definitely you know uh on the east coast right i guess it i guess it is new york yeah metropolis is more chicago i don't know yeah i mean they film it in chicago it's, it's very clearly like chicago when you see it <laughs> in the movies you know what i mean yeah. but I, I don't know yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. There, there was. I mean, the, that's also the, you know, Chicago was a huge hub of privatized intelligence services, and yeah. um, and basically, I think it was called the American Protective League in World War One, which was kind of this like quasi official organization that was like ambiguously uh like deputized by the department of justice to root out german saboteurs and anti-war you know draft resistor type people it basically was then used by a lot of the biggest industrial corporations to bust the iww and like use basically like these deputized people as strike breakers and and like uh, detectives and things like that like a secret police kind of you know kind of in a pinkerton type way and they had hundreds of thousands of volunteers and they basically yeah they went around just like busting up strikes and then calling every iww person like a german agent and getting them thrown in jail so yeah i mean this is an incredible digression about batman but i do think that i I do i mean i do think that it is interesting because if you think about it in a way like most batman based media is from like kind of you know it's batman positive it's all about uh you know from batman's point of view but as you i think you mentioned like if you think about it objectively he is like george i mean he is really not that much more like people tend to think i guess uh i really am not super well versed in batman fandom but i assume people tend to think batman is a hero you know He's a superhero. He's a good guy. What he's doing is good for the world. But really, like, he is crazy. Like, he's 
like wearing this yeah. costume and he's going up and he's like, you know, yeah, like beating up like small time criminals, like based on his own authority, like a lot, you know, like muggers and things like that are like, you know, maybe even like uh 12 year old black kids who are like, you know, uh, idling around a neighborhood or something like that. But yeah, like, uh, so I think that definitely applies to the Yankees and Cowboys as well, where, like, if you adopt one framework, like, it seems like the other side is, like, this maniacal, like, freak, you know, who must, like, be stopped, mm-hmm. and, like, the other side is, the like, the only possible solution, like, they alone can fix it, but exactly. if you try it to step outside of it, if you try to step outside of it, then you can see, like, wow, both of these people are insane, and they're just actually... Like, you know, or both of these uh, formations or, you know, ideological structures or, and uh, you know, societal and economic structures are insane. And they are actually feeding on each other and doing this eternal dance to the detriment of everyone. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is even more... Sorry, yeah, go ahead. Well, I I was just going to say, now I can't stop thinking about, like, racist Batman. Yeah. Like, the movies always kind of portray the criminals very carefully as, like... (laughs) 50 style white thugs with like <laughs> yeah. little caps on and stuff yeah but like if you really were to portray that in a modern setting i'm not so sure that it would always be white people that he would be beating up and it's just <laughs> kind of funny to imagine the stories of him like going in and like beating up a bunch of bloods and crips or something like that and people still cheering for it. it's like wait well hold on he's just beating up a bunch of black people all over the city i don't know yes. if this is like what we're all about but yeah if you are just like fighting crime i think that's kind of what it ends up looking like yeah it's actually bit. kind of funny to think about like batman's traumatized because like his parents were killed by like a criminal and so now he hates all criminals like yeah. i mean yeah, right, eh, yeah. i guess it's lucky <laughs> yeah. that like you know the guy who killed his parents is like hey like look at you see like give me your pearls or whatever instead <laughs> yeah, exactly. of like you know it's like when was the last yeah. time anyone talked like that yeah like, uh well, yeah dude, just because you brought up batman's origin story where a bunch of sicko thugs basically came up and like robbed his wealthy parents outside of the opera uh and you know that was like his whole origin story can i just read like a brief like two paragraph article from the chicago tribune from the 1930s or i'm sorry the late 1920s uh it's like too funny not to uh, yeah, um, this and this this kind of gets to maybe Batman and the Yankees, <laughs> the Cowboys, everything. So on Chicago okay. on I'm December eighth, uh, three powerful organ. It, it says a gang raid on Silk Hats group returning from Chicago Opera is attacked. Three powerful mm-hmm. organizations fighting lawlessness were using their resources today to find four men who don't like silk hats. The secret, the services of the three organizations, the Secret Six, the Association of Commerce Citizens Committee for Prevention of Crime, and the Employers Association, were invoked by Joseph Belden Sr. after four ruffians attacked members of an opera party and made away with nothing of value except the silk hats. Quote, we don't like silk toppers. The four chorists from a motor car as members of the party, all socially prominent, <laughs> returned to a residence in fashionable Ritchie Court after the opera. No attention was paid to the shouts, whereupon the four men attacked Joseph Belden Jr., William C. Madliner, tore their dress suits and took the silk hats, escaping in the car. Herbert McLaughlin, also a member of the party, attempted to interfere and suffered the loss of his shirt front. So that's like... Basically, Batman's like kind of <laughs> it's very similar, but it's basically like yeah. if you attack socially prominent people, they're going to get the Association of Commerce Citizens Committee for the Prevention of Crime. And the Secret Six, who I looked up, were actually involved in the kind of whole untouchables like uh, hunting down Al Capone thing. 
And mm. basically, they're going to, like, send out vigilance committees to go get these sickos. And so that just made me think of, like, oh, that's a, that's that predates probably Batman by about 10 or 15 years. But that kind of thing was going on in cities like Chicago, where these industrialists were getting really into these, like, vigilant committees and were almost sponsoring kind of, like, Batman groups to go out and, like, find these <laughs> ruffians and stuff. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot embedded in kind of the Batman myth, I think, that, like, there's so many levels you can read into it, but it goes back a bit. And, yeah, like, having a psycho like the Joker, like a, a crazy cowboy or an Osama bin Laden kind of figure uh, can basically, you know, uh, direct questions away from, like, who is Batman and why should we be standing him when why don't you go like stop war or something i don't know like isn't there yeah. so much more you could be doing batman except you know uh, i don't know but anyways sure yeah all right, right so let's let's bring it back to the topic <laughs> okay sure there was one uh question i think like if if you are if you're seeking to be critical about this theory, the cowboy Yankee theory, I think one thing that kind of pops up is like, well, isn't this kind of just Democrats versus Republicans? Mm-hmm. Isn't it basically mm-hmm. that in another, you know, just with a slightly different kind of framework? And I was just wondering what you guys thought about that. Yeah, well, I think that it is, but it's basically a way to say that like one party is kind of inhabited by or used by one faction as the deeper roots of like this thing that we're seeing and the parties maybe are more superficial on top of that, uh, I think, because mm-hmm. of course political parties, like he brings us back to uh, the Civil War and things like that. And, you know, uh, he sees this sort of uh, split in the ruling classes as being a very old phenomenon of American society. And of course, the political parties have changed significantly, you know, since since that sure. time. So I think, yeah, he that is something that does side of exist where they these power blocks kind of are associated with the parties. But I think he sees it as being a more superficial layer over that. And, uh, you know, there's uh, structures beneath this. Like, I think uh Howard Hughes's empire is something that is like very vital to the conception of the Cowboys uh, and it's kind of a structural factor. It's more than just, you know, whatever uh, it, one associates with the Republicans. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. But at the same mm-hmm. time, even Oglesby acknowledges that at the time he was writing that book that I, I think maybe Howard Hughes is one of the final kind of holdouts. He also mentioned, I think, with the Hunt family, the oil family in Texas, and how, you know, at the end of the day, even these cowboys were sending their sons off to Harvard Business School to learn kind of modern technocratic business management theories and then come back and rationalize their corporate operations and basically fully integrate. So I feel like, to an extent... Um, yeah, I don't know. The the Republican and Democrat thing, it's also an interesting because this was the last era where those parties kind of uh, flipped their constituencies a bit, where the reactionaries in the South left, finally left the Democratic Party and became Republicans, kind of starting in the 70s and the 80s. And I think that Oglesby's framing, it, it does a good job of kind of debunking the importance of the two parties. I do... I do actually worry a little bit, though, that he's kind of introducing a deeper kind of red-blue dichotomy that maybe, just like the two parties, is not quite as clean-cut maybe as he presents. If you really get down to, like, the economic reality of Mm -hmm. where, who has the money and the power and who's connected to who. Because I think, you know, just like how we know at a certain level, a lot of corporation, the biggest corporations will, to this day, give to both parties, right? 
Mm-hmm. They'll kind of do a 50-50 split. They might they might lean a little more in one direction depending on whatever their interests are. But you think – I mean maybe actually that's different now. Maybe there is a kind of divestment from the Republican Party from certain companies. But if that's only because the Democratic Party now has all of the people that were like moderate Republicans in the 90s practically, right? You know, it's like we've actually almost gone through another shift where, you know, this new, despite how woke the new Democratic Party is, it's, you know, it's so woke that it's open to CIA officials, veterans of the Bush administration, the Cheneys, (laughs) George Bush. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're. Yeah. He has no home here. What's that? Hate has no home here. Exactly. Yeah, hate has types. no home here. If you don't like Dick Cheney, you need to interrogate yourself and your own hatred and <laughs> check your own your prejudice. Yeah, yeah, check your... Yeah, check your privilege. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. But I, I do think that um, I read... I sent... Um, I, I, uh, I sent you, Tom, and uh, also to Khalid, the kind of rebuttal article that was published in late 70s by a guy named Stephen Johnson, How the West mm-hmm. Was Won last shootout for the Yankee cowboy theory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I read that. Yeah. It was, it was interesting. It was yeah. interesting. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe you said before we recorded Tom that you felt like maybe he could have been a little more charitable in general to Oglesby. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, it, what I got, I, I didn't read it very carefully. I kind of uh, scanned through it, but my basic takeaway was that he was indicating that the, the idea of these like distinct socioeconomic bases that form the Cowboys and the Yankees are not quite so distinct at all, mm-hmm. actually. And that when you look at who owns what, who has, you know, all that kind of stuff, like what, what the economic connections and whatnot are, it's much more mixed and you can't really draw out these like two distinct groups from them. Mm-hmm. And that's fair enough. And I think we've kind of talked about how that's probably the case, you know, and that people have their varying interests and it's not really like you would just strictly identify as one side or the other but rather that you would play within this framework that kind of is built up i think he overshot a little bit or was sort of uh taking aim at too easy of a target there like i I think it's interesting data i think it's very good to kind of like bring that evidence to bear but i also felt like to use that as like a complete refutation of this idea sort of misses the point a little bit yeah, um, I but Steve, overall, I did like that. Steve Johnson's critique, I think, for the thrust of it mainly was that the defense industry, which was is something that's heavily associated with the Cowboys, you know, that's like one of their like economic bases of power uh, in theory is the defense industry. And basically what Steve Johnson showed was that these defense industries are still owned, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, like they can't be the cowboy power foundation because like really the defense industry is like its ownership structure is still the same as like any other national industrial sector uh so it's like mainly Mm -hmm. owned by big eastern banks pretty much the Mm -hmm. defense industry is and so that was like you know uh his the basis of his refutation but i think Oglesby did have a little rebuttal. We we read like a a sort of a later uh, edition of the book that i think came out like uh you know maybe a couple of years after the original uh, piece. Uh, I don't know where the original piece was published, but uh, in that edition, uh, Oglesby had a little rebuttal to that. And I think that what he said also had a bit of merit because basically what he brought up was, uh, let me see if I can find it here. He says, uh, 
The point about ownership is perhaps valid as far as it goes, although I find it strange that the criteria Johnson should set up for cowboyhood, in my sense, should exclude from his cowboy sample the case I have long argued is most archetypal and important, i.e. the empire of power to use, uh, see chapter 6. More important, Johnson ignores the extent to which, in the words of a recent summary, the emergence of the Sun Belt has been dependent on its ability to obtain defense contracts and space exploration installations. I found this space connection to be mm. very interesting and salient mm. today as well. But yeah, he goes on to basically talk about how like the money from these uh, institutions to the defense industry flows to a certain region. You know, he says that the First National Bank of Boston and the Girard Trust of Philadelphia may own Lockheed, but Lockheed's plants are in California, Texas, and Georgia. So I think that that's another, that's an interesting thing to bring mm. into the picture, you know, like, yes, the ownership structure is relevant, but the geography also has meaning. And I think that that is something that to me uh, is an interesting, uh, I think that, you know, they, their critiques uh, back and forth uh, helped each other to develop this further, I think, you know, I think that is a, you know, a good salient point about geography. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, that's always nice to see yeah. when people are constructively kind of building these arguments back and forth instead of just trying to like gotcha you know yeah 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 absolutely absolutely i i thought that yeah and i i thought that it, it kind of add it fleshes out a little bit that, that it's almost like i wish uh, oglesby could have gone back and written a sequel or something because he focuses on uh, johnson focuses also on like the personal social kind of backgrounds of the top executives of all these different corporations and he tries to actually find kind of is there a difference in kind of society because if these are kind of two different groups of elites like maybe they they wouldn't go to the same universities they wouldn't be involved in the same fraternal organizations or secret societies and stuff and basically he he did find that for the most part that let's see uh yeah the uh the membership of people who went to the most elite colleges, I think in industrial uh, corporations, the rate is 40%. The defense corporations have 31%. And uh, club membership uh, is actually 70, they're almost equal at 77 and 78% respectively. And, you know, they, they break down like how many of them all went to basically the top like 15 colleges that are considered kind of the most elite, you know, Harvard, Yale, and... Um, I think probably Princeton uh, being among them, as well as you know Stanford and a few others. And it's actually it's like once you get to that level, there isn't much difference in terms of the social yeah. background. Uh, now some Which of these doesn't people, surprise me. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But there's it, there's definitely the narcissism of small differences, though. Yes, like you absolutely. know, like Families Yale people, fighting, and Harvard right? people don't like each other. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Princeton. Right. Yeah, exactly. They don't like Harvard or Yale. They're they like those three like hate each other the most even though like they're more similar than probably the other top 15 uh you know but yeah 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 that, that's yeah. the other thing is i think we don't want to make the mistake when we're looking at you know say these families or something like i don't know like like richard bissell and you know dulles and and bush all like you know being in college together in 1844 we don't want to assume that all of these families are not houses divided against themselves either because you know that like especially right. when you start to get this much money this much intergenerational wealth involved and then it spreads out among descendants and it's been doing that apparently you know since at least the 19th century you're gonna have some issues you know you're gonna have some feuds and then you know different relatives are gonna you know split off to different parts of the country that's something I've found in my research that is kind of complicated a little bit of the Yankee thing was that I didn't quite realize how 
how many of these elite Yankees from like New England were going out west in the kind of mid 1800s to places like Chicago and San Francisco and Cincinnati and St. Louis and Detroit and places like that. And they almost had like the first movers advantage because they already had some capital. They were probably, Mm -hmm. you know, well educated, socially connected, and were able to get into various industries at the kind of ground level, just like how a rich kid could have kind of wandered into Silicon Valley with, you know, some money from their trust fund and boom, like invested in a few things and now they're actually rich. And then all you hear about is how they're a successful tech person. You don't hear about, you know, the, the you know, that's kind of the real like intergenerational economic privilege that has been at play. And so I, I guess, you know, the Yankees didn't just stay in basically, you know, the Northeast and, you know, because Oglesby points out the Southerners partially as a result of losing, you know, their economic system uh, after the Civil War, like a lot of them did kind of go out west. But I think even more so, you know, it begs the question, like, well, the Yankees were the victors and then they were kind of pretty much the prime movers in things like the railroads and like the infrastructure and all that stuff. So they would have been even more well positioned to basically go out and found the very earliest kind of cities and industries and stuff. And, you know, the like well before the Cold War and the defense industry as we knew it today. So, you know, it just complicates it a little bit. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah. But all this nuance goes out the window if we're trying to draw like a genealogical connection between like someone evil and like someone today who we don't like. Uh, then like you <laughs> yeah. know it, everything is homogenous and all families like are extremely close with each other. Uh, <laughs> and anyone who you've ever spoken to or in a picture with like they're your best friend or your grandfather. Uh, yeah. 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 But other right. than that, it's very nuanced. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to say, I think this kind of goes without saying, but like the this is just a good case example of how just because there's like two sides to something doesn't mean one is the good side. Yes, yes like, absolutely. That you want to root for it. Like yes. you don't want to start thinking like, hmm, who's the anti-imperialist tactical ally between the Cowboys and the Yankees? Like, yeah. It's, that yeah. doesn't work like that, mm-hmm. you know? Yes, sure. exactly. Yeah, very much true. Sometimes it's alien versus predator, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all lose. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm not sure if we want to get into this a bit, but uh, I just thought I'd suggest to Tom is that like uh, we haven't really gone over much of the like core top level premise of the book kind of thing in terms of the assassination of mm. JFK and uh, the um, uh, you know the downfall of uh, Nixon, and uh, I don't know if we just want to skim over that a bit kind of thing get get it. So that people that know more about what the, you know, the, what, what this is directing, like what the networks are pointing towards in terms of events in American history. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, I I think, you know, we're kind of coming to the end here. I think this would be a good kind of, I thought that the subliminal jihad episode goes over that very well. Okay. So I think people can definitely go to that for more, but maybe you guys could provide like a really quick summary, maybe kind of a, almost like a teaser for people to entice them to kind of explore more with your uh, with your episode on the topic. Yeah, the Dallas sure. stuff is pretty, you might be familiar with it if you've seen like a movie like JFK, like his discussion of it, it's all through like the Yankee cowboy hermeneutic. So it's interesting in, in that respect. And it talks about, you know, uh, Kennedy's position, like between these groups trying to negotiate them, like his being forced out and things like that but in terms of like how it went down like you probably are familiar with the broad strokes of like the kind of jfk conspiracy theory the watergate stuff is a little bit more interesting because it talks about like uh the sabotage of the uh what was the name of the flight i don't know if you 
remember D- Dimitri. I the but, flight, but Dorothy yeah. Hunt. E. yeah Harvard's dorothy hunt's plane yeah exactly uh and yeah there's some compelling stuff there that's a whole uh aspect to uh the watergate stuff so it's not just like sort of setting up this scandal uh, and everything uh so much as uh like or it isn't just that but it's also like this you know massive plane sabotage that he goes into at great length in his uh sort of formulation of this and uh, yeah, it talks about Howard Hughes extensively and his various connections to the Cowboy Network. Uh, yeah, and, and also yeah, and uh, like chapter. Meyer Meyer Lansky. It does run through both because Nixon had mob connections going back to World War II. But you know, like the kind of Meyer Lansky syndicate mafia involvement also going back to World War II and like their deep integration with the CIA and kind of the very highest compartmentalized levels of the CIA. These people like, you know, John J. McCloy uh, or Richard Bissell or potentially, you know, Ted Shackley, George Bush, whatever, and how it was kind of a coalition of groups, including the kind of cowboy faction that was mad. I think primarily, you know, Noam Chomsky will get pissed, but it was because (laughs) of Vietnam, Oglesby argues, that basically Kennedy got hit. And he was also pissing off a lot of people. I think he was putting tariffs on, he was putting like price controls on steel and you know u.s steel i think goes back to carnegie jp morgan very powerful not necessarily that's more of a yankee thing so i think actually oglesby does say that uh kennedy was also kind of pissing off his own people you know his own northeastern allies and doing things that they didn't like and i think the i, I personally the idea that he might try to negotiate an end to the cold war with khrushchev in the mid-60s uh, was potentially a major tripwire that would have really messed up the game for both the Yankees and the Cowboys, and so mm-hmm. you know they had to the, they had to yeah. do it. We discussed this like issue extensively, yeah, in our episode, like why Kennedy was assassinated, like to what extent, you know, we could expect that he would have uh, how he would have handled the Vietnam War. Uh, I think we can definitely say that it would have been differently. Uh, how exactly it would have shaken out, you know, it's. I think it's difficult to project, but there's also other reasons uh, that are offered uh, for the potential motive. And yeah, I think Dimitri makes a good point that he was kind of trying to appease both factions. Uh, you know, the, he was trying to appease like the cowboy thirst for anti-communist, you know, outflanking and also, you know, to be more conciliatory. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to Mm-mm. to have it both ways. Uh, so he, you know, he had like a I forget what he calls it, but it's like qualified cowboyism, you know, like his Bay of Pigs attempt was like a failed, like sort of cowboy appeasement strategy. Special uh, war. Yeah. yeah. Oh, right. The special mm-hmm. war. That is very interesting. Yeah. Because there's a, a very, I think there's a great parallel between what Kennedy did in terms of Vietnam, where he was kind of trying to, you know, do a, a, a sort of uh, hedge himself a little bit, trying to hedge it, uh, where he would just send in like Green Berets and special forces. It's very interesting to draw a parallel between that and the sort of now like uh, what you might call the Yankee or Atlanticist uh, penchant for drones and things like that, you know, like surgical type of, of mm-hmm. war where, you know, it's not messy. It's not yeah. like blowing everything up. But of course, you know, it's it's horribly violent and it's all like an illusion. Uh, but right. it's still, and as yeah. you mentioned before, like Obama's like death squads and all you know, or yep. death. Yes. What, what, his hit list or whatever. He yeah. His yes. disposition matrix. Yeah, exactly. Right. That, yeah. That's disposition very matrix, Kennedy, yeah. Kennedy type thinking. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah but yeah there's a whole a bunch of things in there uh that we get into our in our episode if people want to check that out yeah 
Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. Really great listening. Um, I'm a big fan of your podcast generally, but I thought that episode in particular was really fascinating. So I encourage everyone to check it out. Yes, and at right Feelings on, Mutual, we are yeah. big You Can't Win fans. Uh, yeah. Like I was saying to you guys before we started recording, uh, you know, definitely your format uh, that you pioneered and invented of two guys talking to each other, uh, you know, was a real big <laughs> influence on us. Yeah, sure. Uh, and the Q&As and the Q&As, let's not forget. Yeah, right. The questions. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's true. Yeah. Speaking of maybe we should get into that. Yeah. Um, sure. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into questions now. Um, the first one is uh, Glenn Greenwald, question mark. Yeah, so I guess just general impressions or uh, opinions about Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, what do you guys think? I mean, I used to be like ch- pretty chill with Glenn Greenwald. Like, I mean, I appreciated it when, I mean, I hate like Bill Maher, so I appreciated it when he told Bill Maher to shut like up, you know? But, uh, like, since then, I don't know. I feel like he is just, like, a gone dad. He's become, like, uh, a very myopic and hyper-focused on certain things. Uh, and I think that, yeah, he's, like, drifting uh, into uh, an interesting direction that, you know, I'm not, like, too like, horribly outraged by, but I also just find, like, very tedious uh, in general. Uh, so, I don't know. Uh, he's also a bit sus with, like, Snowden stuff. I don't know. Oh, Dimitri yeah. probably has a... Uh, <laughs> yeah, a I was curious about what this. Dimitri would yeah. say about that. <clears throat> yeah, I, yeah, I, too, was a fan of Glenn Greenwald in my younger years, like, going back to, like, the Salon days in, like, the 2000s. Mm-hmm. I always thought, oh, he's pretty good. And the Snowden stuff you know at the time i thought oh pretty cool wow you know i believed the whole kind of story uh and then the intercept after that but you know once the intercept era kind of got going i did uh, my sus radar you know maybe it was getting more refined over these years but it just it's a, lot, a lot with the snowden stuff susses me out and feels like it was kind of a production you know, it, it didn't happen mm-hmm. the way that with this breathless narrative with Laura Poitras and the hotel room in Hong Kong. And oh my, oh my God, I got to put a hoodie over my laptop because like, you know, there could be a camera in here spying on me. Just like there's a lot of like melodrama around it. And I would agree with Khaled that like his more recent iteration, even though I think he was right more or less about Russiagate, you know, and I didn't mind anything he was saying about that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's yeah. this weird thing where... Like, people are often trying to cancel him when he says something that I more or less agree with. But then he also runs off and does a lot of other stuff. Not saying he should be canceled, but he does a lot of, like, he just does some sus shit sometimes. And, like, acts, like, uh, the way he frames things. You know, he comes out of this ACLU background. He defended all those Nazis, which is something (laughs) that I feel like he doesn't really honestly. I'm just, I'm very... Mm, kind of down on the kind of ACLU kind of uh I just heard Amy Goodman of course say it like the other day in like a, a Pacifica promo of like you may not agree with like what I'm saying but I will fight to the death for your right to say it and that's like yeah okay. like I'm not all about like yes let's go cancel people and like uh, regulate speech and I think a lot of that is sus but the flip side of that like really utopian uh, ACLU thing that goes to the extent of like I will defend like skinhead Nazi like murderers in court because like they deserve it. It's like okay, bro. I don't know. Like chill. Like 
Yeah, maybe if he did yeah. it once, but I think he did it multiple times, and he's still kind of flirting with... He's also a kind of guy that, that broadcasts himself as kind of like a leftist, but he's really more of a libertarian. He always has been. Right. He's been more of like a kind of a, a little more of like a a more socially liberal Ron Paul guy is how I would probably best describe him. And I don't yeah. think he's ever really changed that much from it. Yeah, I, yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I, I mean... I. You know, if that's your thing, do your thing. You know, I got whatever. I got no problem with it. If as long as it's like you, you know what you are and we know what you are. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Fine. You know, there's going to be things you agree with and there's going to be things you disagree with. And that, that that's fine. But yeah, the like you were saying, the Snowden stuff seems really kind of like uh, this isn't this isn't uh, the whole story here. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. even maybe it is a positive thing, like on balance or something. But there's something kind of not right doesn't smell right yeah most of what was released with him like was stuff that people already knew if they were paying attention it was just like something that was so shocking because there was as dimitri said the whole production around it you know but and meanwhile a lot of this stuff seems to work yeah and all the stuff that snowden allegedly gave them and who knows how much he actually gave them was never released by the intercept and then i think like they they slow walked it for years and then i think maybe in 2018 or 2019 we're just like yeah we're just not going to release the rest of them but you know when they came out they were like we're gonna do a series of articles on this for like the next couple years and we're gonna vet them he also had a little bit of a fetishism of kind of um, taking the national security state's kind of complaints at face value of like, we're going to go through and we're going to comb through all of this information to make sure that it like never jeopardizes like sources and methods or gets like a CIA contractor killed in the field. And it's like, eh, I don't know, like, (laughs) you know, I get that that would open you up to maybe some legal kind of um, issues, but he almost seemed to be embracing that as an ideal. God forbid we would ever want you know, uh, on you know, JSOC operatives to be endangered while they're you know, like plotting to double tap drone strike a wedding in like Yemen or something. You know, it's just kind of mm-hmm. like, dude, mm-hmm. like, are you are you outraged at the war machine or are you not that outraged? It's it, it's in that weird kind of um, Green Party liminal kind of area. Not maybe not Green Party, but still. There's, uh, I don't know, there could have been a lot more you could do with that type of stuff. And I and I think Khaled's right. Like, there wasn't really that much. I mean, the New York Times reported on it in, like, 2005 or 2006, like, the warrantless wiretapping thing. And just people kind of didn't care. And you could even argue that people didn't really care about They still Snowden didn't care. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Only yeah. very few yeah. people sure. cared. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean... Again, there's far worse people in the world, uh, and yeah, his whole thing is tedious. For mostly, that's the the main thing is that like I just find a lot of what he talks about now to be like kind of besides the point a lot of the time, where he has these sort of fixations that are really more about like what's going on in his own life or his feelings about his own self-expression, I guess, uh, and uh, feeling that he should be able to do that, and everything kind of revolves around. It's a common problem where things get stuck into this vortex of like you know, oh, I'm being silenced or whatever, you know, and, but I wouldn't be going on Tucker every night. I feel like that's like, you know, just dumb, like, come on, like that, I feel like is not on the level where like, are you seriously acting like this guy is like a sincere actor for anything good in society like that? It's worth lending your voice to like his agenda probably cia Uh, his dad like ran voice of america in the 80s and yeah yeah super sus like it's it's not it's not so good yeah yeah he he's basically become 
the stand-up comedian that goes on Rogan and complains about cancel culture yes, for two hours. Yes, he really has, <laughs> yeah. which is, like, to me, mm-hmm. like, my strongest opinion about cancel culture is that, like, the discourse around cancel culture is just, like, so incredibly, like, enervating and boring. Like, that's the most boring thing, and, like, it drives me crazy how, like, everything gets sucked into it, and there are so many things where, like, people are tr- talking about one thing, but you can tell they're really talking about, like, quote-unquote, wokeness or cancel culture, I mean, Don had a tweet that, you know, something that I felt for a long time, which is that, like, you almost miss SJW now that, like, they've yeah. got their hands on the term woke, you <laughs> oh, know, yeah, like, you're pining yeah, yeah. for the days yeah. of SJW, you know, it's just like this, yeah, it, it's it's very, very exhausting and stupid. Totally. Uh, yeah. yeah. The uh, only other thing I'll say real quick about Glenn Greenwald is given that he, yeah, that, like, the Joe Rogan thing is a very apt thing to point out. And also Tucker and the types of people that are kind of circulating in that kind of all that that particular media like kind of ecosystem. Um, it's all given me very big Peter Thiel vibes. And yeah. I feel like I feel <laughs> like at some point maybe Glenn Greenwald got invited to that, you know, that that proverbial dinner party in the Hollywood mm-hmm. Hills that I, I've heard Peter Thiel has been, you know, bringing in all kinds of, you know, culture figures that including like Tom O'Neill, the guy who wrote the Chaos Manson book, he threw a dinner party for him and invited all these other famous people. Yeah, yeah I heard he, that on that guy went on Rogan as well. Oh, did he? Yeah, no, yeah, he did. Oh, you're yeah. right. And they've been talking about that book. And uh, I heard that on Brett Easton Ellis's podcast, who was at the dinner party. So he was <laughs> yeah, out course. there as well. Okay. And he's had <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Anna from Red Scare. He's had, I think, maybe Brett Weinstein. Yeah. Like uh, there's. Yeah, just... I've heard Tim Dillon talk about that stuff, who I think is also kind of in trying to get into that circle if he's not in it already. So it, yeah, I don't know. Interesting. Dylan's an interesting guy to listen to about this kind of stuff. He is. He's he, kind uh, of in a one foot in, one foot out kind of way with the kind of this this right. scene of people like like Elon Musk, like like Dave Chappelle, like Joe Rogan, like all these people in Austin and then in L.A. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm just getting getting a whiff of that from Greenwald, perhaps with his yeah. current focuses. Mm-hmm. I remember we had a question for our show about Mark Fisher's exiting the vampire castle. And, you know, it's a relatively old essay. It's very popular, but it was shocking to me how much of that was really about like complaining about like cancel culture you know or like people on twitter like being (laughs) mad at you for being white like the vampire castle was like twitter where like you know people aren't fair to you if you're white or so it was just really yeah it's it's bizarre yeah Yeah. i was never really impressed with that no i I I agree i I liked mark fisher's blog back in the day like he was an interesting kind of guy but it was like not any more so than any random you know left twitter weird twitter type yeah guy. but he's you know, like I, the I most cited dude on kind of the the newest generation of podcasts over the last maybe three or four years and i mean i guess yeah. maybe oh, really? it's just because he's floating around but it is I, it's always jumped out at me that and maybe because he died but it, it's like so many people reference mark fisher have a kind of like their fisher pill they have like a fisher kind of orientation that will kind of come up like sooner or later and yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, he, he's got some interesting stuff, but it's not, it doesn't quite feel like this towering, like, oh my God, uh, but it does kind of mesh with the kind of, oh, I'm a leftist, but I'm also pissed off about cancel culture kind of vibe. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, I think that essay's appeal can be reduced to the fact that people like the image of a vampire castle and also, <laughs> also it's short. So like people who don't read can read it, you know, or at least like can kind sure. of muddle through it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, when that essay came out, I remember um, I said that I would never read it because it's it, I thought that the the image of a vampire castle was childish. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> like and uh, yeah. people 
<laughs> and probably the most like in terms of like uh, on on my own curious cat or nask fm like over the years like people would message me ever so often about it being like please read that essay and i, I would always answer like i'm not doing that because uh it's uh you know, it's a childish thing to talk about. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. and, uh, um, so that, yeah, that's, uh, I, I'm glad that I, I stuck on that, but I don't know. I, I know a lot of people that I, that I trust that, that really like that kind of stuff, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know where it goes, but, um, with, with Glenn Greenwald for myself, like, uh, um, I, I only really know about him from like posting and stuff, you know, like that. Like, I don't, I don't really like, I haven't read much about the Snowden stuff or anything like that, but like for me, like I'm not in a good position to criticize someone for being irritating on the computer. Yeah. Kind of thing like <laughs> that. That's, that's yeah. like, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I get, I get the fun in that. And, uh, I, that's, that's what I, I look at it as. I almost, you know, the other day I almost muted him just because of the, like, like it was getting a bit too irritating. Yeah. But like, uh, um, yeah, he's having fun on the computers. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the idea. Yeah, I mean, people will criticize him for going on Tucker Carlson, but if if you were invited to go on Tucker Carl, I mean, wouldn't you do it just for the fun of it? I mean, I don't know, like um, <laughs> maybe once. I, I, yeah, well, I, I yeah once, but then like if you haven't been disinvited, like after your one appearance, like you're doing something wrong. Like, uh, in my opinion, like that guy who <laughs> yeah, went there enough. and then like called him out for like the incredible hypocrisy of like his whole bit when he's like totally owned by like the, you know, Murdoch and just like oh, yeah, talking yeah, points like, yeah, like that is, I think, a reasonable Tucker Carlson appearance. Uh, but if you're like one of his regular stable of like left punchers, like, you know, again, there's way worse people in the world. Like, you know, you got to make a living, but uh, I disprove of that aspect of Glenn Greenwald uh, myself, you know, yeah, but yeah, fair enough. Yeah. And he's gotten into the the whole gender stuff, like yeah. about uh, trans women and lesbians and all this. That's and right. some people have been really outraged and offended by the stuff he's been saying. But I don't agree or disagree. I, I have no horse in that race whatsoever. So to me, it's just like another wacky argument to just toss into the ring. You know, I mean, I. You know, I, I don't know. This is kind of my hot take on all this, I guess. It's like, I don't know. It, it makes as much sense as any of the other things people are saying about this mm. stuff to me. So it's like, all right, whatever. I don't know. Yeah, it's more yeah. of his tone that I really find annoying, honestly. Like, you know, again, like, you know, 50% at least of things that he says, like, I totally agree with. But it just has this, like, manic energy being like, oh, so you think that people should be silenced? Like, so you, you know, like, <laughs> just like, uh, chill, dude. Totally. Like, chill, you know. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we get into the next one? Um, Have humans ever landed on Earth, or is it fake? Earth, Mm. like, yes. um, Are they talking about humanoid ETs from, say, another planet that have landed here? I guess the only way that you could say no to this question is if you interrogate the meaning of the term Earth, human, or landing. (laughs) uh like outside of like the normal idea like i guess maybe we haven't landed because we are always been on earth so there's no land to make except for like when we're born um yuri gagarin landed on earth yeah he landed back on Earth. yeah i guess that's true you know i mean i mean technically every astronaut that's gone out and come back yeah they landed on earth Earth. that's true yeah Mm -hmm. but yeah there's a a lot to unpack (laughs) 
Yeah, maybe we didn't land on Earth, but the Earth landed on us. Oh, but did yeah, Yuri yeah. Gagarin land on the Earth, or did he touch down <laughs> on the water? Uh, I think he, they mostly touched down on the water. So mm, no, but so, now you know. know the space shuttle lands like on a runway. So technically, well, I guess if you just jump in the air, then you land on the Earth. You know. Yeah, but I think are they getting it? You know, are there like humanoid ETs? Because you know, there's the planet Phaeton, of course, that you know is now the asteroid belt, and according to certain Soviet <laughs> ufologists, was exploded in a catastrophic thermonuclear war that exploded the planet, and the survivors who were like on a space station flew to earth and landed the rocket down with like the, the the nose pointing upwards which is why all of our religious buildings have like a parapet <laughs> or okay. a, a spiral tower or something because it's sure. like the rocket well, and then they taught us you know everything uh, that they knew about you know uh, uh human civilization and we worship them as gods etc um that's one take hmm. <laughs> yeah i mean as long as it doesn't contradict the quran i'm willing to uh <laughs> To yeah. consider it. You know? I don't right. know if that yeah, does. I guess, but... I guess Adam and Eve landed on Earth, right? Because that's it could what be I was seen thinking. as being landed. Yeah. yeah, so that's definitely not yeah. fake. So, yeah, there you go. Sure. Um, yeah, very <laughs> curious questions on Earth. Uh... Yeah. So, we'll wrap it up with this one. Uh, Tom, is there an Islamic version of the book of Genesis? And if there is, how did it start? Uh, just... So curious crazy we were just in... talking about that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, just curious because in the Bible, God first makes himself perceived through sound. This was pointed out to me. And as a guy who's really into music, I thought that was cool. Um, so there's a lot of ways to kind of view this that would change my answer, I guess. And Khalid, you can kind of help me out with this mm-hmm. one. Uh, as a... In terms of like, is there a book of Genesis? Like we don't have like Muslims, we don't have like different books like the Bible does. We we just have the Quran. It's a single text. Yeah, well, there's um, surahs there's that are divided, Hadith, but, but that's after the fact pretty much. Like, sure. Yeah. But and then the surahs themselves are not, you can't think of them in the same way like no. you can as the books of the Bible. Right. Like yes. they, they, they will have themes like organizing themes and principles and even stories and stuff like there's surah yusuf which is pretty much just a straight telling of the story of the prophet uh yusuf or joseph Mm -hmm. but many of the surahs are you they're almost like poetic they're they're, they can be very short and that it's almost just like an imagery that's presented or or just some statements about the nature of god or something and yeah the quran that we have it's very different because it is basically like a transcribed uh recitation of allah's words by the prophet so but uh so it like that's put together in different ways you know the way the quran that we usually have is organized is not like you know doesn't start with genesis the way that the bible does you know it's it's first with al-fatiha which is the thing that we say you know, most often during prayer, and then, you know, it has the right. longest surahs to the shortest. So it's not even in chronological order in what the prophet recited. And even within surahs, there's some parts that are from different parts of the prophet's sort of mission and then the revelation of the Quran. Like, there, it's not all, like, what he said one day or even one month, you know, there could be part of a surah. They're, like, yeah, grouped together after the fact by later Muslims, you know, based on, yeah, like we said, themes or things that kind of uh, seem to go together. But, yeah, there are, I think, you know, another way to answer that is maybe that there's like there definitely are accounts of creation although uh you know there there there's different sort of accounts of 
anthropogenesis or the creation of, of humans in the Quran. Uh, and it does talk a little bit about uh, God creating the earth and earth and heaven uh, a lot at various points. But yeah, there's not like, yeah, book of Genesis. I don't know what you would say on that. Yeah. yeah. Don, can you read uh, the question again, the part where it talks about, maybe I misheard, but it says God created himself. Is that something? Um, so yeah, just curious because in the Bible, God first makes himself perceived through sound oh first makes himself perceived i'm talking sound. about in the beginning there was the word and the word was god and the word you know because that's not hmm. genesis that's how i'm reading genesis that. is yeah uh, that's the book that's the book of gospel of john yeah that's the beginning of john genesis is uh like in the beginning uh you know god created the heavens yeah and, the earth, and i right? i mm-hmm. you know correct me if i'm wrong Carl. maybe you can remember something but i don't recall anything along those lines of like the you know anything very similar to that in the quran or in hadith uh well there there there's different like accounts of like sort of uh god's uh ontology and how like uh yeah but i don't think that god is something that has always existed he's the necessary existence so there's no but i think that i don't know necessarily what the question asker is saying is that god uh you know uh he created himself through sound I think that maybe he's saying God said, let there be light and there was light. Um, But then it also says the spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. So maybe he let himself be known through movement, first of all, or even through the act of creation of the heaven and the earth, which is the first thing that he does. So I don't know. Uh, But although, you know, Frank Zappa used to say music is just moving you know vibrating molecules around so that's that sound is a form of movement that's true yes yes and moving upon the face of the waters you know that could be uh but yeah i think that you know there's many different like hadith traditions that might talk about things like this and there's very many philosophical or sufic accounts of like the uh or like originary creation and the the early phases of god's creation and the creation of of the world and the creation of uh, important figures such as like adam the sort of prototypical man and also muhammad you know the prototypical prophet who uh you know there's a famous hadith like i was a prophet when adam was between water and clay you know so there's all these very interesting Mm -hmm. ideas uh you know but yeah anyway uh there definitely isn't anything about like god creating himself um and the whole thing of god said let there be light i mean in the quran god is definitely uh represented in terms of light like in the famous uh light verse you know but uh there isn't quite a parallel to that um that comes to mind yeah but just in terms of sound, I think that like it, for someone who's maybe interested just in, in like the the concept or the aspect of sound as it relates to God and religion and things mm-hmm. like that, I think there's a lot going on in Islam that Absolutely. might be interesting. Yes, um, mm-hmm. you know, just the 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 way that revelation comes down to Muhammad and the fact that like he, uh, you know, there's there's hadith that talk about the physical. Um, phenomena that he experienced when that happened that there was a like a a buzzing or a humming kind of sound like a a bell kind of like the low frequency of a bell being struck Mm -hmm. uh that kind of happened as he was receiving inspiration in that way yeah and that um you know he hears it right like he's he's being this it's a he received the quran is a very auditory thing yes he received it different ways uh there's different accounts of how he received and i think that uh, he he got it in different ways on different occasions but i mean yeah the first word that he heard was like ikra like read which is an interesting word in and of itself because it both means like to read 
you know, but also to recite, like to speak and right. to hear in a way. Right, uh, and the word Quran yeah, comes Quran, from Ikra. Exactly. Like you can see the root there. Yeah, 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 the recitation, you know. So it is definitely an oral thing. And of course, the Quran has like a melody to it. I think that part of the divinity of the Quran is actually in the way that it's, uh, you know, sound travels through from the prophet, like through to us today. And like the way that we all experience mm-hmm. in our recitation and our prayers, you know, that's part of the way, you know, that we experience Quran. It's not just like... Uh, you know, a, a book in a way. I, I do remember this one, uh, you know, I don't know if this contradicts what I've, what I've just said in, in a way, but I don't think it really does. But, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, the revelation to him. And I remember this uh, really something that always has stuck with me is from uh, Ibn Ashaq, you know, the sort of famous uh, Sirah, the, the most famous Sirah, the prophet, um, where he gets his first revelation. And, uh, you know, it was like, uh, Jibreel, you know, the, or the angel Gabriel, like came and like hugged him so like tightly, you know, and he felt like he says, I felt like I was going to die, you know, and then he felt like, uh, you know, the words were like inscribed upon his heart as if they were a book, you know, and uh, yeah, that has always uh, stuck with me. So it's, you know, it's also an interesting sort of metaphor of, of writing uh, that interacts with, with this, but that I find interesting as well. I don't know. But yeah, anyway. Right. Yeah. And then like mm-hmm. nature is called a book. Like yeah, this, like, exactly. Creation itself is a book. Mm-hmm. Um, the sort of like eternal timeline of all events is a tablet that is already written yeah you know mm-hmm. um all kinds of stuff like yeah that, it's so. great how like the ayah of the quran is like that's the same word like the signs like a verse of the quran is called an ayah or a sign but also like things in nature are called signs so yeah the whole like you know nature itself is yeah definitely rendered in the same terms as 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 a book but yeah definitely if you look at the quran there's all sorts of things like involving uh sounds that you can hear you know if you go to uh, corpus.quran.com and you look up, you know, hear or listen or sound. Uh, I'm sure that you can find all sorts of stuff. Uh, or, you know, the Arab, if you, you know, uh, maybe use Google or if, assuming that you don't speak Arabic, uh, maybe you do. But, you know, you can find the equivalent words and search. You'll definitely find mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there uh, for today. Um, yeah. Thanks, guys, for coming on. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, learning that stuff. I mean, it always feels, I mean, whenever we talk about something that's like in the sort of conspiracy territory, it, it, it's, 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 uh, it's fun and it's sort of exciting, but it's also like, I always feel like, uh, it's talking about stuff that's like, you know, like war and crime. And yeah. I don't know. Like, it's like, I don't know. We have to take a, I don't know, but yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, good. So thanks for uh, coming on. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, yeah. This was fun. Yeah. It's definitely fun. Yeah. It's good to be on again happy to come on whenever uh definitely always a great experience sure. yeah it's always great having you on Khalid, and i really enjoyed uh having you on too dimitri we'll we'll have you guys back on again at some point i really enjoyed this episode and uh again their podcast is subliminal jihad it's definitely one of my favorites and i would highly recommend everyone go check it out if uh if you found this conversation interesting Right on. And if you uh, if you liked uh, you can't win, you can get a second episode every week by subscribing to our Patreon, and you'll get that as well as access to our Discord, where you can chat with us in our lovely community. And if you want to send us anonymous questions to answer at the end of the episode, you can do that by going to our Twitter account at you can't win pod, and there's a link to the uh, curious cat where you send in your questions pinned up there, so you can do it through that. So uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Peace.